Hello and welcome to this special Halloween episode of Cryptic Chronicles. There's a lot of true crime and other messed up stuff that's happened on Halloween in this episode. So expect murder and whatnot and things to get pretty dark. I'm even going to get into the mass evil clown sightings that happened back in 2016. So I hope you're scared of clowns. But we're going to start with uh, an Irish Halloween legend before moving on to the true crime stuff. And the last topic of this episode, I'm going to talk about the enigmatic ancient Celtic holiday of Samhain, often referred to as Samhain, or Samhain. It was practiced by the Celtic people of Europe and the British Isles for a long time, before the Christianized Roman Empire tried to make it die out by changing the date of All Saints Day to November 1st. It turns out nothing could kill this pagan holiday, though because it's actually had a revival of people celebrating it during the later half of the 20th century. I'm going to also talk about Halloween decorations that turned out not to be Halloween decorations at all, but human corpses. So yeah, things might get a little bit morbid. Let's get into it. I'm your host, Tim Hacker, and thanks for listening to Cryptic Chronicles. Alright, we're going to start this episode off with the legend of Stingy Jack. The modern version of Halloween has had many influences from various cultures throughout history, even dating back to an ancient Roman festival called Pomana, which celebrated a goddess of the harvest. And oddly enough, even some of the games that were played during Pomana have survived till this day, such as bobbing for apples. But the culture that's had the most influence on Halloween is easily the ancient Celts. The Celts were a mixture of many different people dwelling in Ireland, Wales, England, Scotland, and Central Europe. Well, some even in Spain, too. The legend of Stingy Jack has its roots in one of these ancient Celtic groups that would one day be known as the Irish. Pumpkins and jack-o'-lanterns are a modern staple of Halloween, but the origins of the jack-o'-lantern are steeped in Irish mythology. It all started with a man named Stingy Jack, though Jack was no normal man. He detested people who blindly followed their cultural conditioning and hated those with a herd mentality, unable to think for themselves. So Jack lived life in his own way with his own rules. Normally, this would be a great thing, but Jack lacked ethics and was horribly self-centered. The only thing he loved more than tricking people was liquor, and to say Jack was a mean drunk would be an understatement. He was a con artist whose reputation became so renowned it basically preceded him wherever he went. Then one day the devil himself caught wind of Jack's deeds and couldn't resist the temptation to claim such an evil soul in person. So the devil sought Jack out. After a night of heavy drinking and swindling the naive out of their money, Jack stumbled home down a dark and desolate road. Then all of a sudden out of the darkness the devil appeared and confronted Jack. 
telling him how proud he was of the man's deeds and how eager he was to claim such a worthy soul. However, through sheer wit and charisma, Jack convinced the devil to allow him one last drink before taking him to hell. So the two journeyed to a nearby pub where Jack would have his final drink. But when the barkeep asked for payment, Jack told the devil that he was out of money. Somehow the clever trickster convinced the devil to transform himself into a coin so they could pay for the drink and leave. Upon transforming into a coin, though, Jack put the coin into his pocket where a homemade crucifix resided. This robbed the devil of his powers. He was unable to transform out of the coin form and was basically trapped. Powerless and at the mercy of the trickster, the devil offered to make a deal. Jack agreed, saying he would set the devil free if he spared his soul for the next ten years. He would continue his life of debauchery, crime, and fraud to make his soul even riper for the devil. When Jack's time was up, the devil once again came to claim his prize. He found Jack drunkenly stumbling down the same dark, desolate road he did in their first encounter. Upon seeing him, Jack greeted the demon king and agreed to go with him. But he was hungry and would only go after eating an apple. Then Jack pointed at a nearby apple tree and asked the devil to grab him one because he was too drunk to climb the tree. However, once the devil was in the tree, Jack surrounded it with crucifixes he'd hidden in a nearby bush. Turned out Jack had planned the whole thing all along, and once again the devil was trapped. Somehow old stingy Jack had managed to trick the king of hell a second time. This time the deal they made was that the devil would never claim Jack's soul. After the bargain was finalized, the devil left, leaving Jack alone on the dark road once more. Old Stingy Jack lived a long life full of tricks and hedonism, but eventually everyone dies. When he was released of his mortal coil, he found that there was no grim reaper to collect him. The spirit world was cold, dark, and difficult to traverse. Jack searched the netherworld until he eventually found the gates of heaven. The trickster desperately asked to be let inside, but St. Peter refused him, saying that Jack was beyond unworthy to even set a single step in the paradise. Then the angelic guardians at the gates sent his soul away. So Jack desperately searched through the dark spirit world until he eventually reached the gates of hell, asking to be let inside. When the devil heard who was at the gates, he came to see Jack personally. The devil laughed demonically at him, saying, we had a deal. Realizing he was damned to be a wandering lost soul, Jack begged the devil for a light to help illuminate his journey through the darkness of the spirit realms he would be trapped in for all eternity. The devil was still very proud of Jack's life of evil and took pity on him. He threw an ember of hell at Jack, then told him to be gone. Jack took the ember, then carved a turnip into the first jack-o'-lantern and placed the ember inside. The light would lead him through the darkness of his purgatory, condemned to wander the earth until the end of days. Jack became a restless spirit that would wave his jack-o'-lantern to lead people away from their paths and influence the living towards evil deeds. The trickster would forevermore seek to fool the living into damnation even till this day.
All right, now let's talk about some real-world unsolved crimes that happened on Halloween, or just weird things that's happened on Halloween in general, like the 2016 clown sightings. Back in 2016, there were a bunch of evil clowns that were basically found everywhere around the country and Canada. They were reported to be found near schools, um, forests, or deserted areas like creepy dark parking lots, etc. The sightings were first reported in South Carolina, when a nine-year-old boy told his mother that two suspicious males dressed as clowns tried to lure him into the nearby woods. And by mid-October in 2016, there were clown sightings and attacks reported in basically every state in the U.S., but these sightings of evil clowns have actually been occurring since 2013 and uh, have pretty much blown up in popularity because of social media. Most of the incidents that happened in 2016, though, lacked evidence of criminal activity, with basically most being considered practical jokes. There were very few that led to arrests, but there were people who were cited for making violent threats to schools, and some incidents involved robberies and assaults on children and adults. So there was messed up stuff that did go down. In early October 2016, further incidents were reported in Canada, Australia, and the United Kingdom. All these communities were described as being horrified and put a lot of pressure on police resources. It also, the whole thing had a negative impact on businesses that revolved around clowns. The World Clown Association president, Randy Christensen, took a huge stance against the whole thing, demonizing the people who were dressing up as clowns to scare people. Circuses and other businesses related to that sort of thing were pretty horribly affected by it. Even Ronald McDonald himself kinda took a back seat for McDonald's marketing. 2016 was a horrible time to be a professional clown in any way, fashion, or form. On October 12th, the Russian embassy in London even issued a warning to citizens about the scare. The whole thing was getting so out of hand across the world that stores were actually being banned from carrying clown costumes. But things really heated up uh, by October 25th, 2016. Several news outlets received threats for an alleged clown-initiated purge that was supposed to take place on Halloween Eve. Social media grabbed onto it and spread it to the point it became a very real threat to people. Law enforcement insisted to everyone who asked that there was no credibility behind these threats. They did, however, tell people to be very cautious when they went out on Halloween. Places where the purge threat was supposed to take place basically tried to warn people not to attack people just because they were dressed up as clowns. But anyone dressed up as clowns who's exhibiting bizarre or threatening behavior should be reported to law enforcement immediately. However, when Halloween did happen, there was no widespread purge like was threatened. Though people were attacked by evil-looking clowns and even people who were dressed up like the, the people in the Purge movie. So I guess it was a pretty freaky Halloween to say the least. Especially for people who have a fear of clowns. The sightings even inspired an upcoming horror movie entitled Behind the Sightings. And next we have the murders of Elizabeth Platzman and Ronald Sisman. This happened early on Halloween morning back in 1981 in Manhattan. The couple were murdered in their apartment, and the whole thing has some pretty strange connections to the Son of Sam killer. 
Ronald and Elizabeth were beaten severely and found shot in the head pretty much execution style. The apartment was completely ransacked, like a total mess. But cops really couldn't find any clues to any suspects. However, rumor was that Ronald was into drugs and hung out with some pretty shady characters. So law enforcement thought that this might have been a motive for the killings. Things took a turn for the weird when a prison informant claimed that one of his fellow inmates had predicted the killings a week before. And this inmate was actually the notorious serial killer David Brokowitz, known as the Son of Sam. There was a time back in 1977 where the Son of Sam brought fear to basically anyone who walked the streets. He was convicted of a series of murders. These shootings came to six fatalities and left seven horribly wounded. Even though that's kind of low for serial killer numbers, you've probably heard of him before because he was pretty big in the media. Now, there's always been speculation that the son of Sam didn't really do all the murders on his own. And in fact, was part of either like a satanic cult or a secret society. And according to this prison informant, the son of Sam said that his cult was behind it. He said that one of the cult's calling cards was to do a ritual murder, then ransacked the home to destroy evidence. When the son of Sam was actually questioned about the whole thing, the killer said that Ronald was a part of his cult, and that he had a snuff film of one of the son of Sam killings. He was going to turn it over to the cops so some drug charges would be dropped against him, but the cult would have none of that, so Ronald had to go. Elizabeth's murder was just collateral damage. Though, despite all that, there was no evidence whatsoever to substantiate the son of Sam's claims. However, he did give a creepily accurate description of Ronald's apartment. But these two Halloween murders are still unsolved till this day. The next story isn't an unsolved crime of Halloween, but it's a pretty freaky true story that took place on Halloween. The urban legend of razor blades and apples or poison and candy is pretty horrifying. Luckily, for the most part, these tales are complete fiction. However, there are a handful of these tales that are totally real. Truth is always stranger than fiction, and there have actually been people evil enough to harm children on the holiday with treats. Monsters may be a common sight on Halloween, but it's rare to find a monster dressed up as a dad. This story takes place back in the 70s. Ronald Clark O'Brien was a father who fell on tough times financially. You'd think he'd want his financial problems fixed so he could take care of his family. But no, not Mr. O'Brien. He was actually secretly a sociopath who only cared for himself. O'Brien, his wife, and his children, Timothy and Elizabeth, started off Halloween like any normal family in Pasadena, Texas, by having an evening meal before trick-or-treating. Afterwards, O'Brien took his son and daughter out for a night of candy hunting. At one point, they came upon a dark house that looked like no one was home, but they rang the doorbell anyway. As expected, there was no response, so the kids moved on, but their father lagged behind in the darkness. Moments later, he came running up to them with large pixie sticks in his hand. He said that it was their lucky day because there was a rich person in the dark house that was giving away expensive candy. He gave the candy to the kids and they continued their trick-or-treating. That night when they all returned home, O'Brien told the kids they could each have a piece of candy before bed. Timothy chose the pixie stick. The boy stopped eating the candy after the first taste, saying it was bitter. 
so O'Brien handed the boy Kool-Aid to wash it down and told him not to waste the expensive candy. Soon afterward, Timothy began screaming and crying, calling for his father. He complained of intense stomach pain and vomited uncontrollably. Eventually, the boy died a slow, agonizing death. When news got out of the boy's demise, O'Brien wasted no time in telling the press that his son was killed from poisoned Halloween candy. He said, and I quote, It seems like it wasn't long before he was up and complaining his stomach hurt, and he didn't feel good. He was bent over vomiting, and I was holding him when he just went limp. We thought we were so careful. We had even wondered if we should go out trick-or-treating this year. There isn't going to be any more trick-or-treating for us. End quote. Yet, dude's a piece of work, huh? Pretty much immediately, police began an intense investigation. During the autopsy, it was discovered that there was enough cyanide in Timothy to kill three grown men, and that the candy had been opened and stapled shut with about half of the candy being replaced with cyanide. Luckily, no other children ate the candy, and all the other poisoned pixie sticks were recovered. But even though O'Brien played the victim to the press, police almost immediately began to suspect him after investigating his story. He claimed the pixie sticks were shoved into his hands by a hairy arm in the darkness at the dark house he and his kids had stopped by, but no one answered. Well... The man who lived at the house was an air traffic controller, who had a staggering 200 people vouch for him that he was at work all night on Halloween. Also, his arms were not very hairy, like O'Brien claimed they were, and there was no one else at the home during the holiday. It was pretty easy for police to see that O'Brien's story did not add up, and upon further investigation, detectives discovered some pretty damning things about him. Ronald Clark O'Brien was $100,000 in debt, he was about to lose his house, his car, and most likely his entire lifestyle. He was also about to lose his job because it turned out he'd been stealing. Not only that, but O'Brien had a history of being fired all throughout his adult life from a mixture of unethical activities. However, the icing on the cake to the detectives was that O'Brien had recently taken out life insurance policies on his children, concluding that the motive behind the poison candy was to collect the insurance money from his children's deaths. And that is some pretty twisted stuff right there. Soon afterward, Ronald Clark O'Brien was arrested for the murder of his own eight-year-old son. The trial was quick. Many who knew him testified that he'd inquired about how to get cyanide and how much it would take to kill someone. So the guy wasn't very bright. At the stand, his sister-in-law said that during his son's funeral, O'Brien talked about taking a long vacation with the insurance money from his child's death. It only took the jury 46 minutes to come to a conclusion, and on May 1975, Ronald Clark O'Brien was found guilty for the murder of his son, and the sentence was death. The whole thing was dragged out for almost 10 years, but eventually, on March 31st, 1984, the evil father was executed by lethal injection. During the whole process, there was a mob outside the prison dressed in Halloween costumes yelling, Trick or treat! O'Brien earned two nicknames for his notorious poisoning of his own son and attempted poisoning of his daughter, the Candyman and the Man Who Killed Halloween. He brought an urban legend to life in an attempt to mask his crimes. The only monster walking the streets on Halloween that night was Ronald Clark O'Brien. This next story is about a masked trick-or-treater that wanted more than candy.
On Halloween night in 1982, Marvin Branlan and his wife Ethel were ready for a night in and handing out candy to trick-or-treaters. The couple was getting on in age, enjoying life in the quiet town of Fort Dodge, Iowa. All was normal for a while, with children and teenagers knocking on their door for candy every so often. It was getting pretty late when yet again another knock came at the door. But this time when they opened it, there was a full-grown adult standing there with a mask on. The man stood there silent for a moment before saying, Trick or treat, give me your money or I'll shoot. At first, the couple thought it was some kind of joke and Marvin even reached out to try and pull the man's mask off. The masked man just swatted him aside and forced his way into the home, then pulled out a gun and aimed it at the aging couple. Menacingly, the man told them to take him down to their basement, give him the money that they had in a safe store down there. The couple looked at each other, then turned to the man suspiciously. There were very few people who knew that they kept their money in a safe down in the basement, so this further led Marvin to think that the whole thing was a prank. He concluded that the masked man had to be a friend, or at least someone that they were acquaintances with. So, Marvin wasn't taking the situation as serious as it truly was. When the couple was leading the masked man through the house towards the basement, Marvin reached out and tried to rip the gun from the masked man's hand. The intruder then shot Marvin in the throat, and he fell to the floor grasping at the hole in his neck, dying shortly after. The intruder then fled the house, but for some reason left the mask behind. Ethel sadly died a few months later. The traumatizing murder of her husband before her very eyes was just too much for her. Years later, a distant friend was overheard bragging about being the masked killer. When these rumors were confirmed, an investigation was sparked, and DNA tests were performed on the mask and the alleged murderer. However, there wasn't enough evidence to pin it on the suspect, so he still walks free till this day, and the case officially remains unsolved. Next is the case of Nima Louis Carter. A child vanishing from their crib is a nightmare for any parent. But on Halloween night 1977, this nightmare became a reality. The inhabitants of the quiet city of Lawton, Oklahoma, were familiar with petty crime at most. So when the parents of Nima Louis Carter put her in her crib only to find her missing the next day, it sent a shockwave of horror through the communities. The odd thing about the whole kidnapping was that the windows to Nima's room were locked. This led many to speculate that the parents themselves were responsible for the baby's disappearance. But that was uh, quickly proven wrong. So the kidnapper had to have actually been inside the house waiting somewhere for the parents to fall asleep. Which is really, really creepy. But the day after Halloween, Nima was gone. For an entire month, there was no word of the missing child or even a ransom demand. However, the parents had not given up hope, but sadly this hope was for nothing. Because a group of kids exploring an abandoned house about four blocks away from Nima's home discovered something truly macabre. The abandoned house had an old non-functioning refrigerator within it, and when the kids opened it up, there was Nina. The corpse had been decomposing for some time and it rolled out of the fridge to fall at the feet of the horrified children. Law enforcement determined that the cause of death was suffocation. Uh, a similar crime had occurred merely a year before Nina's murder. This incident concerned three-year-old twin sisters. They were allegedly tricked into leaving their house by a woman named Jacqueline Robidieu, then put in the refrigerator of an abandoned house. 
Tina and Mary Carpenter were found only two days later after vanishing, though. And Tina even managed to survive. But sadly, her twin sister Mary wasn't so lucky and died of suffocation. Tina told the detectives it was a local babysitter named Jacqueline. Though there wasn't enough evidence to convict her, and the three-year-old's testimony couldn't be taken seriously by the jury because of her age. So Jacqueline walked free. The following year, Jacqueline would become the babysitter for Nima Louis Carter. So, because of this past incident, she was instantly a suspect after the baby vanished. But then after Nima was found murdered by suffocation in an abandoned fridge, all eyes of law enforcement looked towards Jacqueline. It would be an unlikely coincidence her being involved in two child murder cases with the victim being killed in the same way. However, yet again, there was not enough evidence to convict the babysitter, and this time there wasn't a witness whatsoever. So, yet again, Jacqueline walked free. But after years of intense investigation by law enforcement, eventually, there was enough evidence to arrest Jacqueline. However, it was for the murder of three-year-old Mary Carpenter, not Nima Carter. Her trial was swift, and she was given a well-deserved sentence of life imprisonment though she never admitted to the murder of Nima that fateful Halloween night, and no more evidence was ever found to confirm she was guilty. The killer babysitter did get her just desserts, though, by dying from liver cancer in 2005 after a long and painful battle. On Halloween back in 2010, 16-year-old Devon Griffin got up early to go to church. His parents had been divorced for some time, and he was staying at his father's for the weekend. However, on the way to church, he stopped by his mom's house to change his shirt. His mother had remarried and had a stepson from the new marriage named William Lisk Jr., or just BJ for short. Devon had never gotten along with William, and the two rarely spoke or had any interaction with one another that wasn't usually unpleasant. So, when William greeted him cheerfully that early Halloween morning, it definitely threw Devon off. William asked how long he'd be gone, and after telling his stepbrother he was just going to church, he left the house. So Devon went to church, and after the service was over, he returned home to his mother and stepfather's house. William had apparently left, and Devon thought everyone else was just asleep because no one was up and about so he decided to kill some time by playing video games. But after a while, the house was still bizarrely silent. Devon got up and decided to investigate why everyone would sleep in so late, or to see if they'd gone somewhere without telling him. When he looked downstairs in the master bedroom, Devon saw what at first he thought was a Halloween prank. His mom and stepdad were lying in bed with the sheets pulled over their heads. He started talking to them, joking about how it was a good prank, but they didn't respond. Devon's mother's foot was poking off the bed out of the covers, so he poked it. When she still remained silent, he pulled the covers off them, and the true horror of what had happened became apparent. Devon ran from the house in horror. William had bludgeoned his stepbrother Derek Griffin to death with a claw hammer, before shooting his father and stepmother in the head many times. Why he spared Devon in the first place while he was on his way to church is, is still a mystery and one that will never be solved. 
However, based off the two stepbrothers' relationship, many speculated it was William's sick way of making Devon suffer. He killed his mother and his brother, so that was pretty much most of his family. All he had left was his father. But luckily, William was caught very soon after committing the murders. The killer had a history of mental illness, and especially hated his mother-in-law for some reason. Physical evidence showed that she was sexually assaulted just before or after her death. William was verbally abusive and antagonistic to his stepfamily for years. But during his trial, William did lament that he'd killed his father, saying this, I quote, I love dad very much, and it makes me feel sick every time I think about it. I can't really explain why this all had to happen, but I think most of it had to do with my mental illness, end quote. William B.J. Lusk Jr. was sentenced to life imprisonment for three counts of first-degree murder. He committed suicide in prison. And the next story is the case of the trick-or-treat murderer. On Halloween night in 1957, just outside L.A., California, Betty and Peter Fabiano heard their doorbell ring a little bit later than they'd expected kids to be trick-or-treating. It was past 11 p.m. and unusual for the children in the area to still be out collecting candy. But Peter got up to answer the door anyway while his wife listened from upstairs. She heard him say, Isn't it a little bit late for this type of thing? Betty heard a muffled response and couldn't really make out whatever the person at the door was saying. But she did think that it sounded like a full-grown man impersonating a woman's voice. Then, all of a sudden, a shiver of horror shot through her as Betty heard a gun go off, followed by her husband falling to the ground violently. When she ran downstairs, she found Peter shot in the chest and bleeding out. An ambulance got to the crime scene quickly, but sadly Peter died on the way to the hospital. The next day in the newspaper, the press dubbed the incident the trick-or-treat murder, but the police couldn't come up with any reasonable motive. Peter Fabiano was a war hero who served in the Marines during World War II and was also a successful businessman, though he did have a few run-ins with the law in his past. He'd long since straightened up and become a very respected member of L.A. society. There was just no way that law enforcement was ever going to let the murderer of a hero off free, and they vowed to solve the crime with all the resources the LAPD could muster. It turned out to only take them about two weeks to find the probable suspect. Researching the victim's past, they learned that Betty and Peter Fabiano had been having marital issues and actually only recently moved back in with one another after a separation. During the separation, Betty had been living with a 40-year-old divorced freelance photographer by the name of Joan Rabel. Joan had actually worked for Peter for a short time and when questioned by the police, told them that the Fabianos were, I quote, Two of my closest friends. End quote. However, it turned out that when Betty and Peter got back together, Peter made her swear never to see the woman again. He'd taken a strong dislike to Joan and essentially exiled the woman from their lives. But after being questioned, the woman was uh, just basically sent free because of a lack of evidence. The police were keeping their eyes on Joan because what they did see in her was the most powerful motive of all. Jealousy. With the case starting to go cold, the police were ecstatic when they got an anonymous tip telling them to search a rented locker. There they found the murder weapon, 
After researching the sales records for firearms sold in the area, police found a new suspect, Goldine Pizer, a 40-year-old close friend of the former suspect, Joan Rabel. Goldine admitted to committing the murder that Halloween night, but Joan had been the person goading her into killing Peter Fabiano. Joan had brainwashed Goldine into hating the man because of the intense jealousy she felt after Peter had cut her out of his wife's life. Joan had even taken Goldine to one of Peter's businesses, so she knew exactly what he looked like for the night they planned to kill him. The night of the murder, the women had driven to the Fabiano home and waited until all the trick-or-treating had died off. The two thought Halloween would be the perfect night to commit a murder because no one would think twice about masked people walking the streets. The two women were sentenced to life imprisonment, where they'd spend the rest of their days. Thanks for listening to Cryptic Chronicles. Are you interested in starting your own podcast? Please support the show by using our sponsor, Blueberry. Blueberry is optimized for iTunes, as well as pretty much all podcast hubs. Don't worry about contracts or expensive fees. You have your own RSS feed and no third-party site. You won't ever have to leave your own website. Blueberry hosting really is the key to podcast success. Try it for a month free and a month of free podcast statistics by going to crypticchroniclespodcast.com. At the bottom of the homepage, you'll see the Blueberry link. By going through us, you'll really be helping us out. Also, make sure to support the show by joining the Chronicler's Vault. By supporting us on Patreon, you'll have access to exclusive bonus episodes. The more financial support we get, the more content we can produce. Anything will help, so if you can't afford the Chronicler's Vault, simply donate whatever you can, and we would greatly appreciate it. Go to crypticchroniclespodcast.com and click the donation button on the bottom of the homepage. To keep up to date with all Cryptic Chronicles content, follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, or our Facebook page. Throwing the Facebook page a like would also be very awesome. Thank you for supporting Cryptic Chronicles. Most of all, thanks for listening. This next story is actually from my hometown. Napa Valley, California may be known worldwide for its wine and beautiful scenery, but it's also home to some strange legends and alleged paranormal activity, such as the local monster legend of the Napa Rebops and the Haunted River Inn. Every year it's flooded by thousands of tourists savoring the exquisite wines and delicious food to be found there. However, very few are aware of the darker aspects of the idyllic wine country. And back in 2004, two grisly murders occurred in Napa on Halloween night. One-time beauty pageant winner Leslie Mazzara and her roommate, Adrienne Insogna, were handing out candy to children trick-or-treating like any normal Halloween night. Eventually, when the children stopped coming, the two went to bed. They lived in adjacent rooms upstairs and their other roommate, Lauren, lived downstairs near the back of the house. Little did the women know, a man waited outside in the darkness, chain-smoking cigarettes. Around 2 a.m., Lauren was awoken by strange noises coming from upstairs. 
When she realized that the bizarre sounds were the screams of her roommates gradually getting louder, she jumped out of bed horrified. As Lauren moved towards the stairs, she froze and hid as she heard someone rapidly descending the stairs in heavy footsteps. There, she waited for a time, scared to even move. The whole time, she heard the girls upstairs crying out for help in agonized rasps. When she eventually made it upstairs, she found Leslie and Adrian dying from multiple stab wounds. However, by the time law enforcement was on the scene, the two young women had already died. The whole city of Napa was shocked, with some people even putting bars on their windows and others selling their homes and moving away from the area the murders took place. Many rumors and theories ran rampant throughout the wine country, as the shocked citizens of the quiet city of Napa came to terms with what happened. The girls lived in a safe neighborhood, and no one can think of any reason why the girls would be murdered. They were well-liked, happy young women with everything going for them. And neither of them had any known enemies or people that hated them. Some people claimed it was a mob head. Others claimed that they were secretly into drugs and were killed over drug money or something of that nature. All these speculations were considered ridiculous by the Napa Police Department, though. However, law enforcement was quite positive that the girls were targeted, and it wasn't just a random crime. Well, um, I cracked myself. At least Leslie was targeted. The police questioned 1,300 people and took a staggering 218 DNA samples going through the possible suspects for the brutal crime. And NPD detectives dug deep into the girls' lives. But they found little, if anything, of possible motives to kill the girls. For a second, they did suspect one of Leslie's boyfriends. She was casually dating two men at the time. They suspected the older one because when he saw flowers from the younger one, I guess he shot the girls an evil eye. But soon after, it was proven impossible that he committed the murders. Police had discovered many cigarette butts outside the house that had been smoked down to the filter at the scene of the murders. And they had the DNA of the killer on them. There was also blood from the killer found at the murder scene because the two girls fought back. This DNA didn't match either of the boyfriends, and none of the suspects they came across were a match. Almost a year went by with there being no real answers to the Halloween murders. But the search ended on September 27, 2005, when Eric Koppel turned himself in for the murders. On Halloween night, he'd waited outside the girls' home, and when Eric knew that they were all asleep, he shimmed his way through an unlocked window where he ruthlessly attacked Leslie with a knife. Adrian heard her friend in the adjacent room screaming and went to her rescue, where Eric stabbed the two to death before running downstairs and escaping through a window. The scary thing about this case is there was nothing to suggest that he was ever dangerous, and Eric was well known for his sense of humor. He was Adrian's best friend's fiancé, and the girls all knew him well. Before he turned himself in, he was even in interviews with the family and circle of friends of the victims, where they all spoke highly of him. Alright, next up is... Next up is a little bit more macabre. Believe it or not, there have been a lot of people who have died or been murdered close to Halloween, and their bodies just left out for people to see. 
everyone thinking that they were just Halloween decorations. I'm even going to talk about someone that died in a Halloween attraction and everybody just thought it was part of the show. Two days after Halloween back in 2012, 46-year-old Dale Porch was dropped off from his graveyard shift only to collapse on the way to his front door. It's not known exactly when he died, but no one driving by or walking by stopped to help him. They all just thought he was a Halloween decoration. A mailman even had to step over the corpse to deliver the mail, but he just thought that Dale was a display as well. Eventually, the man died, and he wasn't discovered until around 12 p.m. when his son came to visit. The family was outraged at the mailman for not calling an ambulance because when the body was found, it was still warm. Which means he actually died only recently, and his life probably could have been saved if he was just taken to a hospital. And if it was any other time other than Halloween, that probably would have been the case. The next one happened on October 13, 2015. The city of Chilcoth, Ohio was fully enraptured with the Halloween spirit, though there was a decoration hanging from the fence of an electric power substation that many found so realistic it unnerved them. It was a Halloween decoration of a body so horrifying a neighbor called it, and I quote, the worst Halloween decoration straight out of a horror movie, end quote. For an entire day, dozens of people saw the corpse as they went by conducting their affairs. Eventually, a man walking his dog got close enough to the supposed decoration to notice a revolting smell coming from it, and that the body wasn't hanging from some sort of hook or something like a normal decoration, but by the shirt it wore. Only then was it discovered to be the actual corpse of a woman named Rebecca Cave. At first, law enforcement thought that Rebecca was just the latest victim in a spree of killings that had been happening in Chilcoth throughout the years prior by an unknown serial killer whom still hasn't been caught, by the way. However, detectives did quickly dismiss this theory because it didn't take long for them to discover the actual killer. The night before the body was discovered, Rebecca and her boyfriend had a heated argument in the field behind the power substation. The man beat her horribly before picking up a large rock and striking her in the head with it repeatedly. A blood trail from the field led directly to where the corpse was found hanging from the fence. Rebecca had survived the initial assault and fled. She managed to make it to the fence, but her shirt got caught on it as she attempted to climb over it, and she died suspended there either from brain damage or blood loss. The woman was so badly beaten that law enforcement couldn't even tell what her gender was when they found her. The next one happened in Los Angeles, California back in 2009. A 75-year-old man named Mustafa Zayed was found dead on his porch with one eye having bled profusely. Apparently, Zayed was well-known by his neighbors for going all out on Halloween and having elaborately horrifying displays on his porch for the holiday. His body had been sitting on his porch in plain view of the public for five days before people realized it was a real corpse. When questioned, they all just said that they thought it was one of his latest displays but Zayed had actually committed suicide five days prior by shooting himself in the head. This next one took place in New Jersey back in 1990. During the Halloween season in Lakewood, New Jersey, there's a haunted hayride attraction. And in this story, things got a little bit too real. Brian Jewell worked at the attraction, playing a hanging victim that the hayride passes by on its route. He was supposed to talk to the crowd and scare them. However, when the hayride passed by Brian, 
he remained motionless, with the driver wondering what was going on. It turned out he was dead, and the 40 people on the ride witnessed a dead body without even knowing it. Of course, many children included. The strange thing about this incident is that Brian's feet were on the ground, but the noose around his neck was tightened. He could have just used his hands to loosen the noose, but didn't. So the bizarre way in which he died made police think his death was foul play or suicide. Though some claim that he was actually murdered through supernatural means because there was no motive to kill him that detectives could find and Brian had never shown any indications of uh, mental illness or anything else that would make anyone think he would ever commit suicide. He had no history of depression and he basically had everything to live for. And another possibility is some people speculate it was a serial killer. You know, somebody who doesn't need a motive to kill someone. Alright, this last one is easily the most messed up. In 2004, close to Halloween, a 35-year-old man committed a pretty unspeakable crime in Farmingdale, Long Island. Derek Ward murdered his own mother, Patricia, who was a well-known professor at Farmingdale State College. She was beheaded in the street right outside the apartment complex they both lived in, yet... Somehow nobody witnessed the murder. After cutting off his mother's head, he kicked it down the street for a little while. But then he went and committed suicide by jumping in front of a train not far from the murder scene. Patricia's corpse had multiple broken bones and multiple stab wounds, so many wondered just how such an atrocious event could occur in broad daylight without anyone noticing. Neighbors and police went right by the murder scene many times throughout the day, but everybody just thought it was a Halloween display. One neighbor even tapped the decapitated head with his foot out of curiosity. I mean, how do you not notice a decapitated head is real after kicking it with your foot? One question later, most witnesses said they just thought it was a Halloween prank and not to be taken seriously. In fact, nobody even thought to investigate the headless body until her son's corpse was found on the train tracks nearby. Police went to the apartment to notify Patricia of Derek's death, and only then did things start to come together for law enforcement. However, no motive was ever discovered, and no one will ever know what truly transpired between them that led to a son murdering his own mother. Derek did have a history of mental illness, though. Let's talk about Samhain. So, like I said at the beginning of this episode with uh, the legend of Stingy Jack, Halloween has had a lot of influences on it, dating back a lot farther than people might think. The pagan Romans even had a holiday all about the dead called the Lemuria, which, which I guess actually technically took place on three different days, but it's mainly known as being on the 13th of November. And when Rome converted to Christianity, the Lemuria was changed to All Saints Day slash Hollows Day. They changed it into a day to revere dead Christians, or saints, or martyrs. The church would eventually move All Saints Day to November 1st, in an attempt to nullify the extremely popular and enigmatic pagan festival of Samhain, which when translated in Irish Gaelic means Summer's End. And I know what you might be thinking because, at least phonetically in English, Samhain looks like it should be pronounced Sam Hine. And uh, 
Yeah, a lot of people do make this mistake. But there's actually more than a couple different ways to pronounce it. Like Salween, Shavin, Sowen, Sowain, among others. But the standard Irish pronunciation is Sowen. And the Irish are one of the few remaining cultures still around with a lot of Celtic influence. So we're just going to go with that. So I'm not dismissing the Scottish, Welsh, or any of the other remnants. Sadly, a lot of the information that we know about the Celts has been handed down to us from ancient Roman and Catholic scholars, as well as folklore collected in the 17th century. All of these sources are horribly unreliable and biased. The Celts themselves recorded their history orally for the most part, with any little that was documented being destroyed by the church as they attempted to absorb all pagan religions. It was also pretty common Catholic practice to alter pagan traditions and Christianize them, in a way. In doing so, it was much easier to convert the non-believers. So, in a strange twist, Christians actually helped keep some of the pagan traditions alive, though greatly altered. But despite the lack of any objective scholarly work documenting the history of the Celtic cultures and the attempt to wipe them from history... It's not too hard to connect the dots and find the origins of our modern Halloween in the pagan festival. Well, at least many aspects of it. No one culture can claim to be the source of Halloween. However, there is a lot of confusion about what Samhain was thanks to pop culture. Fiction has really taken a lot of liberties when presenting the Celtic holiday. With the famous cartoon network, Hanna-Barbera produced Halloween special being one of the worst transgressors. Many people took the cartoon as historical fact, with many famous YouTubers reviewing and actually saying it was educational. It shows ancient Egyptians practicing a form of Halloween and witches at Stonehenge and all kinds of other silly stuff that's completely made up. But books and comics have also had a huge influence on presenting Samhain incorrectly. And usually they don't even pronounce the Gaelic dialect right. They call it Samhain or Samhain. Many times they even depict Samhain as an entity in and of itself, instead of a festival celebrated by the Celtic societies. I've seen this in cartoons and even in the show Supernatural. They call it Samhain, Entity of the Dead, or something like that. And while the idea that Samhain was an actual entity is, I guess, technically accurate, because in folklore depicting Baylor and the Evil Eye, there is an entity called Samhain. The sources of this tale are questionable at best. The idea comes from a man named Charles Valancey, a folklorist who lived in the 1700s. He's a perfect example of Christian scholars warping information to suit their own worldview. What he wrote about the entity known as Samhain has no other references in any other Celtic mythology, and he gives no sources of his information in any of his work. He basically made the stuff up. And sadly, it caused a domino effect for later writers to just take his writing as fact, even though his work concerning Samhain, Samhain, was mostly fiction. In modern times, we have a much more accurate view of the Celts and their Festival of the Harvest, and people who take the stance that Samhain was an actual entity is actually very fringe, because there's just no credibility behind it. Samhain was about all the gods and goddesses, and nature spirits, and the living and the dead. 
Now, the Celtic calendar divided the year into two halves, the dark and the light. Samhain was the start of the dark half of the year. It was the end of summer. Though officially Samhain takes place on November 1st, the celebrations did begin at sunset on October 31st. They would light massive bonfires where people from all over would gather to burn crops and sacrifice animals to Celtic deities. In doing this, they honored the gods and gave them their fair share of that year's harvest, which would then guarantee another bountiful harvest the following year after the darkness of winter had passed. In ancient times, farming and crops were no laughing matter because if crops failed, people starved, and wars could actually break out between the clans over resources. I mean, we may be kind of spoiled in modern times, but to the Celts, death was always around the corner, and... People from all walks of life would see it on a daily basis. Not like now, where people can basically live their whole lives without even seeing a corpse. So, to ancient peoples, the harvest represented life. It was a big deal. Samhain was also a spiritually symbolic time, for letting the past go and opening up oneself to new possibilities. In this spirit, Celtic families would often clean out their houses and land, removing clutter and old things. So instead of spring cleaning, they had fall cleaning as a tradition. The festivities of Samhain were exotic and immensely stimulating. The Celts that gathered around the massive bonfires would wear costumes and dance, singing songs or chanting poems, with many of these dances being expressive forms of art that would tell tales. Cycles played a massive role in their culture, with the Wheel of Life being one of the most sacred beliefs. Many of the dances would revolve around the ever-changing rhythm of life and death found throughout nature. So, you can imagine these masked dancers expressing symbolism through their movement, while the firelight illuminated them in the darkness was most definitely provocative and enchanting. But the costumes on Samhain actually had a bunch of different purposes. On the eve of Samhain, they believed that the veil between the material world and the spirit world waned during the transition from the light half of the year to the dark. A human could possibly wander into our world just as beings from other worlds could enter ours. The honored dead were given leave to rise from the other world and walk freely among the living, with many of the costumes worn during Samhain meant to show them respect. Though not all dead were honored or even given leave to pass on to their next existence. Depending on one's deeds in life, someone could be trapped inside the body of an animal upon death. If this were the case, then the Lord of the Dead would release them into their new incarnations during Samhain. Wearing animal costumes was symbolic for these once-trapped spirits being let loose once again into the physical world. Hence all the animal masks and many Celtic rituals. Though not all costumes and masks were animal-related, these costumes were also meant as reverence to the gods and goddesses of the harvest, along with the sacrifices. It was a way of showing how thankful they were for all that had been provided for them throughout the past year. Or if there had been some conflict between the Celtic clans, it was also a way of showing thanks for any victory or any trouble the community may have overcome in general. Their culture was incredibly spiritual, so they were always quick to request aid from deities to overcome hardship. Wearing a mask representing a deity on Samhain showed how thankful one was for the strength they'd been given to overcome tribulation. And this reverence was also a way to request future assistance from the god or goddess to get through the cold, harsh winter to come.
and aid them once again in any trials they may face during the dark half of the year so that they may live to harvest and show the god reverence once again the following year. But there was another reason why the masks and costumes on Samhain were essential. Not all the dead were honored or even sacred to the Celtic people, and the spirits of the other world were just as assorted as those in the living, with there being good, the bad, and everything in between. Malevolent, sadistic, and vengeful souls could cross over just like any other. So for good reason, many Celts had a great fear of the evil dead during Samhain. They could cause great misfortune, destroy crops, kill livestock, or even haunt those who'd wronged them in life, or even anyone who didn't do anything. Some sought to simply torment the living or cause suffering and even death if they were strong enough spirits. So, to hide one's identity during Samhain was an extremely efficient way of avoiding dark spirits, and not fall prey to their trickery or supernatural wrath. Also, Celtic shamans and Druidic priests were thought to have enhanced spiritual powers during Samhain. It was basically the perfect time for prophecy and fortune-telling. With the veil so thin between the physical world and the spirit world, they could communicate far more efficiently with the gods and goddesses, as well as the nature spirits that the Celtic people thought were basically everywhere. Requests to these deities could be more effectively made, and bargains easier to obtain. For these reasons, the spiritual leaders of the Celtic cultures during Samhain had an insane amount of power and influence over the clans, and countless people would come to them for a plethora of different needs and wants. But Samhain was also one of the most powerful times of the year for the Celtic shamans and Druidic priests to understand the will of the gods and dictate it to the masses. There's actually been some Roman references that have survived that actually describe the divination tools they used back then, with some sounding like the precursors to tarot cards or channeling. They would also use tea leaves, uh, cast bones, and a variety of other things to make their predictions and prophecies. And even though Samhain is basically a forgotten holiday in modern times, uh, well, other than it being mixed in with Halloween traditions, during the latter half of the 20th century, practitioners recognizing this ancient holiday greatly increased. Or they recognized something at least based on it. During the end of the 20th century, there was somewhat of a Celtic renaissance with the dwindling influence of the church over the masses. To modern pagans and Wiccans, it's one of the most important times of the year. Though the way that Samhain is practiced by these neo-pagans can actually vary greatly. Some groups prefer things to be as historically accurate as possible, while others blend folklore and modern traditions becoming something almost entirely new. Alright, that's it. I hope you all enjoyed this Halloween episode of Cryptic Chronicles. And make sure to watch out for evil clowns and decorations that might not actually be decorations. Make sure to follow us on social media and give the Facebook page a like. Then join our Facebook group. We'd all really like to hear from you there and we have a lot of interesting conversations about weird stuff. Seriously, it's a, it's a really awesome group of people and you should come join in on the fun. Also, I have a special thanks to my original fan, Mark Lane, and all the other Patreon supporters. 
Also, congratulations, Mark, on your new house. Ashley and I wish you all a happy Halloween. But most of all, we'd like to thank you for listening to Cryptic Chronicles. Have a good one.